We are in our wisdom series, and we're just going to take a moment to pray, and we'll be able to kind of settle after that really lovely, incredible worship. Thank you, team, so much. And we will get started into our study. Jesus, thank you so much for this chance to be with one another. Thank you, Lord, for my sisters and brothers here, and and just what a beautiful family this community, this church is. I'm just grateful to be here and to be with you and with one another. We pray right now that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears and our minds, that we might turn towards you through the study of your word, that we might feel connected with you and with one another as a result of that study. And we ask to become more aware of your presence here, Jesus, in this place. We ask all this in your name. Amen. All right, we are continuing in our study of Proverbs. Now, First, we'd like to say that who wrote Proverbs and how do we think about it and how we talk about it. And we probably say that it's a collection of short poems, kind of almost like haikus. And some, many of them are attributed to Solomon, although there are others who are also contributing too. But Solomon really is the source of our wisdom tradition in our Bible. And this comes from 1 Kings chapter 3 and 4 and then following. Solomon has become king after his father David. And it says this. At Gibeon, this is a town just north of Jerusalem, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I should give you. So I'm going to give you anything, Solomon, what do you want? And Solomon says, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David. He walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you, and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O oh Lord my God, I have made your servant king in place of my father. You have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I'm only a little child. Solomon's like, I don't know much. I'm just like a little kid. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant's in the midst of a people whom you have chosen, a great people so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. So give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people and able to discern between good and evil for who can govern this, your great people. Now, God is so pleased with Solomon's response. He says, I'm so glad you prayed for that. You know, you could have asked for riches. You could have asked for a long life, all these other things. But you asked for wisdom. You asked for the ability to discern between right and and wrong and now to do so I will do this for you and so I will give you a wise and discerning mind no one like you has been before you and no one like you shall arise after you so this is where we get Solomon as the wisest of all mankind the Bible says it God says it through through this passage in Kings I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor all your life no other king shall compare with you this is actually historically true in the Israelite kingship. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. So this is all good news. And then in chapter 4, verse 29, it says this, God gave Solomon very great wisdom, discernment, breadth of understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He's the smartest dude out there. Okay, he's just the smartest guy. He's wiser than anyone else, wiser than Ethan. Y'all know Ethan. He's wiser than that guy. He's wiser than all these other people. And his fame spread throughout the surrounding nations. He composed 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. So he, 
was prolific. He com- contributed a lot to our literacy, to our literature of wisdom literature. He would speak of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows in the wall. He would speak of animals and birds and reptiles and fish. People came from all the nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and they came from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Is that lovely? I mean, like, how do they describe how Solomon is smart? He knows about birds and reptiles, right? He's really, he knows the stuff. He can describe the hyssop that grows in the wall, which you can still see today, by the way, that hyssop growing out of the wall. The rabbis also talked about Solomon's wisdom. They actually said that until Solomon, people didn't know how to understand Torah. They had received Torah from Moses, but didn't really know what to do with it. They described it this way. They said, well, Rabbi Yosef said, imagine a big basket of produce without a handle so it could not be lifted till one clever man came and made handles to it. And then it began to be carried by the handles. So tell Solomon arose. No one could properly understand the words of Torah. The way that Solomon interpreted the Torah and understood it, it was as though he put handles on the basket and enabled us to be able to carry that wisdom around with us. In fact, that word is also connected sort of like to your ears, right? Like you have handles now that as the Torah is poured into you, you can be picked up and moved around. Another rabbi said it this way. Imagine it, Rabbi Hanina, imagine a deep well full of water, cold and sweet and wholesome water. It's so good. But no one could drink of it till one man came and joining rope to rope and cord to cord drew from it and drank. So proceeding from one to another and from one parable to another, Solomon penetrated to the innermost meaning of the Torah. So it is because of Solomon that we know what to do, how to do it, because he's so wise. In fact, his wisdom preceded him and his reputation throughout the world that you guys know, Queen of Sheba visited Solomon in 1 Kings 10. Like She's like, I gotta check this guy out. He is apparently the wisest of all the kings. Let's go see. And so she shows up and she says, ah, okay. She comes to test Solomon with harm questions. She comes to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices, much gold, precious stones. So she's wealthy. She's got all this stuff. And she comes and she began, she, when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. So when the queen of Sheba had observed all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his valets, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. So she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your accomplishments and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Not even the half had been told me. Your wisdom and prosperity far surpassed all that's been said. So Queen of Sheba comes and she's like, yes, what you said earlier in First Kings about Solomon is true. He is the smartest guy in the room, in the Zoom, in the outside, in the entire ancient Near East. Like this guy is wise because he knows about the birds and the reptiles and the plants, right? So let's dive in then to how Proverbs is formed and what it is. It's not really, has anybody ever sat and tried to read it like sort of cover to cover just from the beginning, Proverbs chapter one, verse one to the end? It's um, chunky, right? It kind of gets stuck in your mouth because each bit needs to be chewed on a bit. You know, not even, you couldn't even really do a chapter a day. You almost have to do just a verse a day. And there's pretty much a meme that's been created for every single verse in Proverbs because they're all pursuing some sort of, some bit of information that they're trying to pass along. The book of Proverbs contains down-to-earth, ordinary advice. In fact, so ordinary that there were many first century rabbis that were like, why is this book in our canon? It's just common sense. It's not inspired in any way. Everybody knows 
don't do this, do this. Everybody knows this is what happens if you do this and this. So they just questioned why it was there because of its commonplace nature. And if you recall, when you read through the Gospels, there'll be times when Jesus will say something, for example, in the book of Luke, and he'll say, some of you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal thyself. Well, that proverb is not in the book of Proverbs, but it's just sort of like the the way of talking about common sense things in the world today. Now, the authors of the book of Proverbs, whether it's Solomon, and it is attributed to him at least large chunks, not entirely, um, they were concerned about the things we're concerned about too. The authors of Proverbs are concerned about the same things that keep you and I up at night. They want to know how to avoid quarrels. They want to know what to tell your kids about sex. They want to know about God. They want to know about Torah. They want to know about money. They want to be able to teach you about how to work, how to have friendships, what type of friends to have, how to stay out of the bad crowd, how to pursue the good crowd, all of those things. And a lot of the advice is poured through that. Now, there are clearly some issues also in the book of Proverbs. For example, the number of times Solomon or whomever has to talk about a quarrelsome wife It doesn't just happen one time. It's better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home, Proverbs 21.9. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fear. I mean, this is really on the minds of whoever's writing these things, Proverbs 21. And here we go again, like Proverbs 27, 15, 16. A quarrelsome wife is like a constantly leaking roof on a rainy day. Whoever can restrain it. It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop. Again, Proverbs 25. I'm not repeating the same verse. These are different verses, and this is not exhaustive. For the price of a prostitute, is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Dear Lord, that's something to, right? Like, and the advice here is sort of like, hey, if you're going to do something, just go to the prostitute, because if you go to the married woman, that's more trouble than you want. So this is not awesome, right? And there's some issues with it. Maybe it's because Solomon, though wise, had multiple, multiple wives and concubines, and maybe that's why he's talking about the quarrelsome nature of it all. Because he's just not being able to manage quite any of it. All right. But there's also things in the book of Proverbs that are funny but true. Right? Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. That's true, right? Like, if you're patient and you wait, your gentleness might be able to move something that feels immovable. Um, If you find honey, eat just enough because too much of it and you'll vomit. So, that's probably true, right? I don't know. I've never tried to eat a whole bunch of honey, but I imagine... It wouldn't feel good. Um, As a dog returns to vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Nice, funny, but true. Uh, Like clouds and wind without rain is one who boasts of gifts never given. And this last one I think is great advice. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house or he'll become weary of you and hate you. Right? So like, don't overstay your welcome. Go and then leave and don't just hang out all the time. So funny, but true advice. We also have deeply important advice throughout the book of Proverbs. Important advice on how to live out our life with sincere pursuit of ethics of God. Um, Proverbs 29, 7. Good people care about justice for the poor, but the wicked are not concerned. And then those verses for the poor and concern for the poor are persistent throughout. Uh, Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Whoever mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He that is glad at calamities will not be unpunished. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. 
Do not rob the poor because the poor, he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. A lot of concern. And my favorite one, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong, and he will take up their case. And we have a picture there from Israel of the ancient boundary markers that as people came into the land and they were given their portion of the land to be responsible for, it was per, it's talked about in numerous places, don't move the boundary marker. That's what's given to that person, and God's paying attention to boundary markers. God cares for the poor. God cares for all of that. So Proverbs are probabilities, not promises, and they are the general rule, not the exception. And in the book of Proverbs, there's a lot of speeches from a father to a son. Hey, this is what I need you to know. Here's how the world works. But it's not a promise, because as soon as you start to read the book of Proverbs, you can go, but that's not true. I have seen the righteous forsaken, right? I have seen poor people suffering when it is not because they were lazy. So these aren't promises, but they are probabilities. It is likely that if you don't commit adultery, you will have a better life, right? So simple probabilities of what you get when you follow God's wisdom. Primarily, the book of Proverbs is trying to tell us the art of living well. The sages were very concerned with the art of living well, with others, with ourselves, with God. How do we do this? What does it look like? And what are good practices? It's a curriculum for a lifelong living program. And I know we pointed out some of the funny verses there or the unique verses, but there's quite a lot in there that is really incredibly wise and good. And you do think as you read through it, wow, I think if we kind of did these things, we would be better off as a community, as a site. There is some wisdom here that is deeply important. Dr. Ellen Davis says it, says of the book of Proverbs that the book is for unexceptional people trying to live wisely and faithfully in generally undramatic circumstances of daily life on the days when the water does not pour forth from the rocks and angels do not come to visit. How do you live in between those huge miraculous events? What do you do with just the daily life? So let's open up to the first chapter in the book of Proverbs. It starts like this. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. Like, they're too naive. We've got to teach them something early on, right? And let the wise also hear, even though you guys already know everything, you're wise. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning and the discerning acquire skill to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. For the ancient Israelite, knowledge is power, but not the way we do it. The ancient Israelite is not concerned about acquiring some sort of specific or specialized information so that they can then have a good long life for the rest of their life. That is not how wisdom or knowledge is equated. It is not for the ancient Israelite, you should grow up and 
go to a very good school and then get into a very good school and then get a very specialized degree where you're good at this one very small thing. And then you will be able to have power over the people who don't know how to do the thing that you know how to do. That's not how the ancient Israelite approached wisdom or knowledge. In fact, neighboring empires of Mesopotamia, of Egypt, and later Greco-Roman empires as well, they excelled in medicine, in astronomy, in fine arts, and architecture. The ancient Israelites were not known for this. In fact, again, if you look just again at Proverbs chapter 1, you will see how is wisdom understood? It is understood as righteousness, as justice, and as equity. The Israelite sages do not promote power as the reason for wisdom, but instead define success as the establishment of righteousness, justice, and equity. Israel is not interested in any form of knowledge abstracted from the concrete problem of how shall we then live in kindness and fidelity with our neighbors and righteousness and justice and equity in humility and faithfulness in the presence of God. That's what they equate wisdom with. Righteousness, justice, equity. This is the pursuit of wisdom. Not a specialized knowledge, not something you can hold over somebody else who doesn't know what you know, but simply that way in which we will live with one another and live with our God in the land where God has placed us. So to that end then, when was the last time you were interviewed or were interviewed by somebody and asked, how's your righteousness going? What's your view on justice? What's your view on equity? Unless maybe you're like the officer of diversity and equity and justice within some corporation, right? But overwhelmingly, these are not primarily the things that we're asked about in the world that we live in. For the most part, people ask us about how, what was our last work history? What's our educational history? Um, how did we, what do we think about ourselves? What's your greatest weaknesses? What's your greatest strengths? But people aren't asking these other questions. I've actually been complaining for years that nobody in my 30 now plus years of pastoral ministry, no one has ever walked up to me on a Sunday and said, Pastor, how are you doing on loving God and loving your neighbor with everything you've got? Yeah, the number one commandment that when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? He says, this is the most important commandment. No one has ever asked me, how are you doing in that? No one has ever asked me, how are you doing with righteousness, with justice, with equity in your community? They have asked me my position on gay marriage. They've asked me my position on abortion. They've asked me my position on women or how dare you be a woman and be a pastor. They've asked me all those other things, but they've never asked me, how are you doing on loving God and loving your neighbor? They've never asked me about righteousness or justice or equity. This just isn't the way in which we think about our world or we think about knowledge or we think about wisdom, but it is the way that the Bible thinks about it. It's the way the Bible talks about it. And I think it matters. It should matter to us. Now, the Bible shows no interest in abstract knowledge for the sake of knowledge alone. Knowledge puffs up, as the Bible tells us, when it's abstracted from love or goodness or mercy or forgiveness. The queen of Sheba did not come all that way to see someone pontificating on life's interesting questions. She came to see someone who ruled with righteousness. I think this is important, right? Because there's an, a chance that we might 
overemphasize some aspect of our faithfulness or our walk with God, and we have abstracted that from these other values, from the fruit of the Spirit, from all of these. Years ago, somebody told me, I have the gift of prophecy. And I was like, awesome, that's so great. And they said, yeah, that's why people hate me and they kind of think I'm a jerk. And I'm like, um, I don't think prophecy equals I can be a jerk. And then that's like, the reason why people don't like me is because I'm a prophet, right? Like, yes, we do have the example of prophets in the Bible who may not have been entirely welcomed upon delivering a message, but that should not be your marker as to whether or not you're a prophet. Oh, they hated me, so therefore I'm a prophet. I'm like, have you tested your prophecy? You can't abstract it from love. You can't abstract it from the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. You can't abstract it from the fruit of the Spirit. You still have to have knowledge that is marked by love, by care and love for neighbor, by these ethics that God is putting forth in the book of Proverbs. Fourth century church father Augustine of Hippo made a distinction between these two types of wisdom of knowledge. Sapentia and scientia. I don't know if I'm saying that right because it's not Hebrew and I'm not really good at the rest of the languages. So these are terms that may best be not rendered as wisdom and then abstract knowledge. Of Sapentia, Augustine said, true wisdom is such that no evil can ever no evil use can ever be made of it. True wisdom is such that no evil use can ever be made of it. So it's like things that God is saying, like, love your neighbor, care for the poor, evil use can't be made of it. And scientia is not inherently evil, but it's problematic in that abstract knowledge has no intrinsic relationship with goodness. It's not set into the wisdom of, of the Torah, into the wisdom of Proverbs, into the I would say the, the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, right? It's inher- inherent to scientia is the danger that it can be so easily misdirected to our own selfish or short-sighted needs. That we can obtain knowledge and we don't use that knowledge for the good of others. We don't ask, does what I have learned, does it, does it create good in the world? Does it love my neighbor? Is it the way in which I have loved God? It's just knowledge. And we see over and over and over again in our world that people operate with great knowledge and no goodness at all. And we can look at the weapons of war that way, can't we? There's incredible knowledge and engineering as to how to achieve the most horrific effects in war. Incredible knowledge, but is abstracted from all goodness, from all righteousness, justice, and equity. One of my own personal heroes, Jane Goodall, says this. Your life matters. You can't live through a day without making an impact on the world. And what's most important is to think about the impact of your actions on the world around you. She has tremendous knowledge, and she has engaged that knowledge with care and concern for the entire world and for the people who are in the world. Now, as Proverbs continues on, Proverbs also, in addition to just setting up what is wisdom, it is righteousness justice, and equity. Proverbs also understands that with wisdom comes discipline. It is paired and it is hand in hand. And we don't like that word very much, but it's there in our Bible repeatedly. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Just in case you're wondering. I think some, some translations are like brutish, but it's stupid. Um, the, NRV, the NRSV, the NIV, although my NIV 1984 edition 
which is problematic for other reasons, but keeps the word discipline. But most of the others remove the word discipline, including today's NIV and others, and they place it with instruction. So here's how it reads in the NRSV. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That's how the NRSV renders it. Um, David Stern, in his translation of the complete Jewish Bible, says this way. In case you didn't know how to say Solomon in Hebrew, here you go. The Proverbs of Shlomo, the son of David, king of Israel, are for learning about wisdom and discipline, for understanding words expressing deep insight, for gaining an intelligently disciplined life, for doing what is right, just, and fair. The fear of Adonai is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. I think the reason why we don't like discipline is because we think it means to punish. But as Dr. Dan Siegel in The Whole Brain Child says, that too often we forget that discipline really means to teach, not to punish. A disciple is a student, not a recipient of behavioral consequences. Does that make sense? I think the reason why the NRSV and the NIV and others change discipline out and put instruction is because we have a negative connotation for that in our context, right? We think discipline is somebody wagging a finger at you and being really harsh and rude, but that's not how the Bible treats it. And I think when we lose and we just think about instruction, it just sounds like another good lecture that you've sat under. But discipline is connected to discipleship. Discipline derives from disciple, disciple to a philosophy, to a set of principles, to a set of values, to an overriding purpose, to a subordinate goal, or to a person who represents that goal. This is Stephen Covey. A discipline is necessary if you want to be a disciple. This is not easy work at all. Proverbs 33, chapter 11, sorry, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, don't despise Adonai's discipline or resent his reproof, for Adonai corrects those he he loves like a father who delights in his son. If you and I see a child running in the street and we do not correct that and discipline, it's not enough to say, Let me instruct you to not run in the street, although that's helpful instruction and teaching, but is also a disciplinary process. And I'm not talking about punishment. I'm talking about modeling for somebody how to live. Let me show you how to cross the street safely so that you can do it on your own next time. There's a discipleship element there. Um, Years ago, walking in Israel with one of my mentors, and I was given the opportunity to teach, which was crazy in the context. And I worked really hard, and I got my little 10-minute teach together, and I'm given this opportunity. I'm sitting, and I teach, and it's okay. I was super nervous. It's hard to teach in front of your mentors, um, let alone in front of other people. And afterwards, I asked him, he he said something like, oh, good job. I could tell it was not, you know, and you're like, oh, no. And I sat there, and I was on the bus, and I was right behind him, and I was like, he's like, good job. And I was like, okay. And I didn't really want to know, you guys. I really did not want to know. But I was like, listen, like, am I going to do this or am I not going to do it? So I leaned over and I leaned in and I was like, I don't don't want to just think that I'm getting good at this. I, I really want to do it. So could you teach me what I missed and what I need to do better? And it was hard. You know when you're like sweaty and hot and you're like stomach's flipping, all of that, right? But I want to be discipled. 
I want to do better. And so he was like, okay, here's what you did wrong. <laughs> like three things. And it wasn't that the content was wrong. I just didn't craft it the most powerful way that he went. So I was like, okay, okay, got it, got it. And then the next thing you want to do is what do you want? I want to crawl in a hole. Never go back. Like, that's good. Like, I'll just stand at the back of the room for the rest of the time. Thank you very much. I'll just take the discipline and go. But I turned back and I was like, can I, can I have another chance? And he was like, okay. A couple days from now, you can do it again. I'm like, okay. And I nailed it, right? But not because, because I was, he taught me how, right? He taught me how to do it. And that practice of discipleship, the practice of the imitation of the mentor, the rabbi, the sage in front of you, the one who has just gone a little bit further on the journey, that is essential to the practice of wisdom in our life. We have to find somebody in front of us who's, who's done this for five more minutes than we have or has gone down that road before and say, could you teach me? And the fool says in his heart, I don't need to know. So this is hard work. It's not easy work to pursue this kind of wisdom and the discipline and discipleship necessary to achieve this wisdom in our life. Proverbs 1.8, right after that, we've been talking about verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. But this is Proverbs 1.8 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. The word there for teaching is Torah. Do not forsake the Torah that your mother has taught you. Do not Stop listening to your father's instruction. And the first word there for listen is the same one that we say every single Sunday when we say, what was the number one commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, Lord. It's the word Shema. Shema Israel in Hebrew. That word Shema means hear, listen, pay attention, and it also means do. And this is necessary it is the discipline is necessary for the achievement of wisdom, right? It's not enough for us to say wisdom is righteousness, equity, justice, justice, equity. It's not enough to say that. You have to do it. And in order to do it, you have to be disciplined because it is hard. And it's easier to take the shortcut almost every time. When I think of Jesus' teachings... Like, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. Man, I know that that is discipline in my life. That is a life of self-discipline because it is not my automatic response. My automatic response, if somebody were to strike me, would be to strike them back. My automatic response when somebody cuts me off the freeway is to honk and give a very dirty look, right? Minimally. I actually, it's pretty much all I do, but I think things in my head that are probably not. And if I'm alone, I might say them. Um, so turning the other cheek is not, Pope Francis was like on my sermon calendar this morning, this way tweeted. Turning the other cheek is not the withdrawal of the loser, but the action of one who has a greater inner strength, who defeats evil with good, who opens up a breach in the heart of the enemy, unmasking the absurdity of his hatred. It is dictated not by calculation, but by love. This is a disciplined life. This is a life that is practicing over and over and over again what it is to love in difficult circumstances. I remember, for those of you who are in sports and coaching, and I, I am not, but I 
remember years ago hearing that the people who were on the court playing basketball would do better in their performance if at night or at some other part in the day, they closed their eyes and also, in addition to doing all the baskets and all the practice, also imagined themselves constantly making that basket. And because I was in junior high when I heard that, and I was unfortunately on a basketball team, where primarily what you do when you're in middle school on a basketball team is just run from one basket to the other with very low-scoring opportunities. I, and I really didn't love the game, I thought, well, if I don't practice, at least I could just think about it <laughs> a lot. And that would be, that was, that was more attractive to me. So I thought, I'll just do that. And it actually did help. I've often thought about this in my life and walk with Christ. How do I practice what my response will be when the hard thing comes? And I've rehearsed it in my head. I've practiced it. Now, I know that for sure I'm going to be found wanting on those occasions, but I still practice it. I still try. And in situations that I've been in, in various settings where I knew I was going to be in a difficult community and I knew things were going to be hard, and, and it, sure enough, in the midst of a, a, a trying to do good, a fight broke out, and it was physical, and there was starting to be blood drawn by people, and it was in the midst of some deep needs in the community— um, not here, not a spark. I had, I had prepared because I knew I was going to be traveling by myself and I was prepared and I was like, okay. And I jumped into the fray and I shouted, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop. Because I was like, that's going to be it. Like when I see the violence, I'm going to be ready because I'd heard those things that people just ceased and like God showed up. And I will tell you the God's honest truth. I leapt across kids and I shouted and I got in the middle and nobody stopped. <laughs> nobody stopped. And somebody always had, like, jumped on the back of one of the person. We, like, eventually pulled everybody apart, but nobody stopped. It didn't work. But I was so glad that I had disciplined myself to practice it. Because at least I knew what to shout. Other than, oh, no! <laughs> I was ready with something. And even I, when I, and I did take a beat, I was like, for sure, this is going to, oh, no. Okay, we're still, yeah, they didn't, they didn't care at all. But... I think that when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about practicing it. And it's hard work, and we have to be disciplined in it. And ultimately, what the other, the Proverbs, the author of Proverbs will talk about a lot is the fear of the Lord. We also don't like this phrase. We don't like to talk about this, particularly as Christians, we're talking about the love of God a lot, but we don't talk about the fear of the Lord. But Proverbs has many places throughout the entire book where it'll say things like this from Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Ellen Davis says it this way, that fear is an elemental response. Reverence is a head trip. Oftentimes, we don't want to say fear of the Lord. We'll say reverence for the Lord. Just know that God is super holy and special. But she thinks the word fear is important. And she says, this is why, that fear is the unmistakable feeling in our bodies, in our stomachs, and our scalp. When we run up, against, run up hard against the power of God. And from a biblical perspective, there's nothing neurotic about fearing God. The neurotic thing is to not be afraid. I like that concept. She goes on to use the example of when Israel is coming through the Red Sea. That as they're passing through these waters, they look back and they see Pharaoh and the Egyptians on coming and they are afraid. And then God does this crazy miracle, Exodus chapter 14, 31. And Israel, and you remember then 
Pharaoh's army is swept away. The waters come crashing in. And then Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And now they're not afraid of the Egyptians anymore, but they do fear the Lord. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant, Moses. The fear of the Lord comes when we recognize that God is God and we are not. And that life is bigger than this one moment and that we are but a spark. I remember when I was 13 years old and I was praying and I had this moment where I just really realized that I wasn't in charge. And I remember praying that saying, okay, God, I get it. You're God. I'm not. I'm not in charge anymore. And it was the fear of the Lord that took hold. I was not afraid of God. I know that God is good and God is loving. I don't think I've known a day where I didn't think that God and didn't know and wasn't taught that God loved me. But I was well aware of who I was not in the relationship and who was in charge. Ellen Davis says it this, that when we are personally confronted with the power that spread out the heavens like a sequin veil, that formed up out of dust and blew breath into our lungs, that led Israel through the Red Sea on dry land and left Pharaoh's whole army floating behind, if we can experience that power close up and not be gripped in our guts by the disparity between God and ourselves, then we are in a profound state of spiritual slumber, if not acute mental illness. Fear of the Lord is the deeply sane recognition that we are not God. And as we go through all of that, we recognize that as we love God, as we serve God, as we study, as we pursue wisdom, we recognize that the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom and before honor is humility. We are aware of who God is. We are in awe of God's wisdom, of God's power in our lives. And because of that, then we have great humility in our response. Wisdom is inherently modest, the Proverbs authors will tell us. And here we are, we go through the entire book of Proverbs, we get to Proverbs 30, and it starts with this, surely I'm the most ignorant man and don't have a man's understanding. So you have all of Proverbs and you've gotten to, I know nothing and I am a fool. And then they talk about how to be humble in various circumstances, how to consider others better than yourselves, how to walk in humility. I love this verse in Perkeva where it says, if you've studied much Torah, this is in the sayings of the Father's rabbinic writings just after the time of Jesus. If you've studied much Torah, don't brag about it because that's why you were made. So you don't take great pride in the fact that you have some knowledge or I have some knowledge. That's why we're made. We take then from the fear of the Lord, from wisdom, a deep, humble place. And this is something I think is incredibly lost in our society. When you see somebody with specialized knowledge, then everyone's like, oh, that person knows. And people don't question it. And they don't push on it. And they don't ask the questions. They, they think, well, that person knows they've studied more. They've gone to this place. They have these credentials. But humility is core and key, the Proverbs authors will tell us. In fact, they want you to even take a stance to it. They'll say in Proverbs 25, 6, and 7, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Jesus says this same thing, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 14, 8 through 10, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So if the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat, then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. When you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place and you'll be honored in the presence of all your other guests. 
This is wisdom, right? Don't walk around thinking that you know it all, even as you're reading a book written by the smartest guy in the room and in the Zoom. Proverbs again says this. Proverbs 15, he who neglects discipline despises himself. He who listens to reproof acquires understanding. And the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. And before honor comes humility. The fool never considers themselves wrong, while the wise actively seek out discipline, which is never wholly comfortable. It's the no pain, no gain, right? We have verses in our Christian in the New Testament, in our Christian text, it's so important to this, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This comes as part of that beautiful poem that is in Philippians, that beautiful song. That Christ humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. Wisdom must, demands humility. And apart from it, we get lost and we're back into that knowledge that puffs up and it gets removed and abstracted from all of those ethics. I think the thing that helps me so much in this constantly is the constant remembrance that every person I meet is a son and a daughter of the king. Every person I meet is made in the image of God. Every person I meet is loved by God, is designed by God, and has something to share with me. They know something. You all know. We all know something of God that we can share with somebody else. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2.6. All of this comes from the Lord. This is not up to all of us to get like really intense and go, okay, I'm going to get all the wisdom and I'm going to read all the wisdom books and I'm going to memorize the book of Proverbs and when I get to those weird verses about the quarrelsome wife, I'll just ignore it or I'll memorize it and hope that God reveals to something. You know, it's not about that. It's the belief and understanding that all wisdom comes from God and that apart from God, divorced from God, we lose something deeply important. It becomes abstracted from the core and essence of all of that definition again of righteousness, of justice, of equity. So I'd like to leave us with this. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The spirit of God who provided wisdom to Solomon upon request lives in you, lives here. We can ask God for wisdom, just like Solomon did. If you and I are up against something difficult, we can make the prayer request. We can ask God to show up for us. We can talk to somebody more sage than us, more, more experienced in walking down that road. We can seek the discipline involved. What we will lose, though, is if we divorce it from where the wisdom comes from. It must sit in the wisdom that God provides. Otherwise, it's just fancy talk that will burn with everything else. This wisdom God gives us changes the world. It changes how we love each other. It changes how we love the poor. It changes how we care for one another. It changes whether or not we actually pursue justice and equity and righteousness in our world and in our life. It changes the economy of how we live of how we raise our children, of what we raise them to value. Grow up, 
get a job, get lots of money, get the important profession, get that specialized knowledge so that you'll know something somebody else doesn't know and so that you'll be more valuable according to our economy? Or is it my son, my daughter, care for the poor, be concerned with righteousness, with justice, with equity, seek the Lord's wisdom, study God's ways, ask questions, consider others better than yourselves, pursue humility, have fear of the Lord. You and I aren't in charge, but we know who is. And that incredible presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, we are not left alone in this. Christ has given us the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can lean into that. I'm going to invite the band up to close us. And as we do, I want to invite you to the table. The table that Jesus welcomes and opens to all. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.